Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On May 11th, Fidelity Investments Canada hosted Focus 2023, a day-long event for advisors featuring Fidelity's portfolio managers, subject matter experts, and thought leaders. Sessions ran both on stage in Vancouver to a live audience and from our Toronto studio for a crowd of thousands more online. Early in the event, Adam Kramer and Scott Menzi took to the stage to discuss their tactical approach to income investing. Adam is portfolio manager of Fidelity Tactical High Income Fund and Fidelity Strategic Income Fund, and he shares that tactical high income offers an attractive combination of income and total return, with having a flexible mandate to invest across the full spectrum of income-oriented asset classes, including bonds, for example, treasury bonds, investment-grade bonds, high-yield bonds, and so on and also dividend-paying equities. Scott, Institutional Portfolio Manager, unpacks just how tactical this fund has been in the past. Among other topics, Adam and Scott, with host Pat Bolland, share how the fund is currently positioned, as well as opportunities they are seeing across the spectrum of bonds. They also field a few questions from the live audience, and speaking of the live audience, you will hear a few references to slides that were shown to the room. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Both of you hail from Boston. Is that right? So seaside community. You come to Vancouver. I believe it's your first time in Vancouver. Did you get a chance to experience it? And what were your first impressions? Well, I was joking. We walked down to the water yesterday and as we're looking out on the ocean, I said, Adam, this looks a lot nicer than East Boston, <laughs> right? So from, Wouldn't be hard. <laughs> so from our office is at, at 245 Summer Street in, in Boston. We look out towards the airport and, you know, East Boston, much different landscape here with, with the mountains. Um, so it's beautiful here. We love it. There you go. Yeah, great Your city, impression? Great, great city, beautiful city. I, like Ramona was saying, very vibrant. And uh, if only other cities could be like that as well. Yeah, no kidding. We'd all live there. Okay, let's start with the fund. Uh, how would you describe your fund, Adam? And then uh, what kind of an investor is it suited for? Great. Well, great to be here uh, with you, Pat. We're now in our 10th year on this fund. Uh, and uh, this is a dynamic income solution. It's uh, an attractive combination of income and total return. And it's a flexible mandate. So it's a flexible mandate to invest across the full a spectrum of income-oriented asset classes. So that could be anywhere from bonds on one end, uh, treasury bonds, investment-grade bonds, preferred stocks, high-yield bonds, floating-rate debt, uh, emerging market debt, all the way to the other end, which would be dividend-paying equities. And, um, you know, we just heard Ramona speak. I work closely with Ramona on this fund. We've we've known each other for many years. She's one of the co-managers. Another co-manager is Ford O'Neill, who's an expert on all things uh, investment grade, who works with Jeff Moore, who you'll listen to today. And Scott Mentu, who's an expert on all things uh, credits. Uh, And I am an expert on credit as well. 20 years in the uh, high income group. I manage all the convertibles, uh, the convertible bond funds at Fidelity, the preferred stock funds. I've been managing institutional accounts for all different types of credit strategies 
strategies for many years. So we're, we have four bottom-up security selectors uh, that are, are speaking about what we're seeing in the market and where we're seeing the best opportunities. This fund is for everybody. It's a set it and forget it total total uh, compounder, total return compounder. It has, it's it's an alternative to a uh, traditional 50-50 balance fund. It's, a, it's an alternative to a 30-70 fund, a 60-40 fund, uh, a 70-30 fund. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is provide you with um, an alternative to investing in a 50-50 balanced index. Even though we don't have a benchmark, we're, we're really building our risk profile around that. But really gives you downside protection, like Ramona was saying, same philosophy, and give you that upside capture when the markets uh, head higher. Okay, Ramona talked about her team that she's got behind her at Fidelity. Your team, obviously, she's on that team uh, with Ford O'Neill. How often do you guys actually talk? How much? I mean, you and Scott probably talk on a daily basis, but Ramona and Ford. We're talking all the time. I mean, we have um, we have meetings set up on the calendar uh, every single week that repeat every either month or quarter. So it's a continual conversation. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're speaking with our inflation analysts, our business cycle analysts. We're speaking with bottom-up security selectors in all the industries, not only on the bond side, but also on the equity side. Uh, we're speaking each, to each other what we're seeing uh, in the markets um, from our perspective, because bottom-up security selectors will have different opinions. Uh, and then also with Ramona, um, you know, we're just, just having casual conversations as well. Many of the top ideas that I have in my convertible bond funds, my high income funds, my preferred stock funds, Ramona's equity income funds, mm-hmm. Ford O'Neill's total bond fund, many of the top ideas are in this fund. So we'll just, I know what her best ideas are at all times. Um, and so it's a continual evolving process. Okay. Here's a really cool chart, Scott, and I want you to explain and sure. walk me through it a little bit because this is a multi-asset uh, fund per se. So walk me through the chart first off and describe how it's different than other people that do some kind of an income fund. Sure. So, so what we have on this chart, it's, we call it the, the reason this fund exists or, or the raison d'etre of the fund, right? So what we have here is the major income-oriented asset classes in the U.S. and their annual calendar year returns. The green return is the best performer that year, and the purple return is the worst, right? And the bottom is kind of that dispersion, so the difference between the best and the worst performing asset class. And to what Adam was saying about you know, trying, to find, trying to give you a better risk-adjusted return than uh, a traditional balance fund, that dispersion of returns is what we're trying to capture because a traditional 50-50 balance fund is really just looking at the top and the bottom. And as you notice, you know, there's about 20 plus years of history here. It's usually something other than investment grade bonds or S&P 500 stocks that leads the way each year. And where we sit within Fidelity in the Fidelity High Income and Alternatives Group, our team is focused on that middle piece. So finding opportunities in that middle piece allows us what we like to say, do less with more and give you and capture that, that dispersion of returns better than a traditional balance fund would. Okay, when I first saw this chart, and I've seen it a couple of times though, the thing that jumped out at me is the burgundy is beside the green. And look at the bottom left-hand quarter, equities in 2002 versus 2003. Down 22% next year, up 29%. Exactly. Uh, you look at high-yield bonds, very similar, down 5% in 2015-16, and then up 18%. Wouldn't it just be easier to just take those real losers and buy them? Well. It's, it's, in, in some instances, it works that way, right? And, but what, hap- what we have to figure out is why are this, the, those, those, uh, those purple or burgundy numbers happening? 
And what's happening typically is that too much bad news is getting priced into those asset classes. So in the case of 2015, we had um, you know, energy start to collapse. I think folks will remember right around the Thanksgiving holiday, there was a, a big collapse in energy prices. And at the time, the high yield bond market was heavily uh, invested or had a heavy allocation to energy. And what happened was that the, the market started, to, that market started to price into a recession. We got into 2016, that recession didn't happen. And then that asset class took off. So what we're always trying to do is find those asset classes where the bad news is priced in. It could be recession risk. It could be interest rate risk. It could be a number of risks. But if we can use our team and find those areas where the bad news is already priced in, what will happen? The bad news happens. Our positions don't go down as much as the market. But if the bad news doesn't happen, we get this outside total return. So that could be spread compression or multiple expansion for equities. I'll point out it doesn't always work. If you look at emerging markets debt, which is the second column down yep. on the right-hand side, it was down, down, down. So if it, it fits in. What do you do for downside protection, though? Uh, it's a mandate of the fund, is it sure. not? Yeah, so I, I think the big thing that we'd like to do is, and we, we'll talk probably talk about this a little bit more, is the re and, and I think Ramona talked a little bit about it too, is you need to have enough current income to offset the risks you're taking in the other parts of the portfolio. So what I mean by that is how much does your income potentially offset the, the downside scenario if, if equities go down 10% or if interest rates or credit spreads widen out? Is there enough income to offset a good chunk of that risk? And if you're doing that, you can get a portfolio that has these really attractive risk-adjusted returns with many different mixes of what's happening below. And one of the things that I always like to look at this chart, and I say, you know, I think about my, um, you know, any investment class that you ever took, right? You, you need to take risk to get return, right? That's what we've been told. Mm -hmm. But when I look at this chart, there's many periods of time where you have something other than stocks having really strong returns, right? So if you can be focused on these areas, know when to go in them you can do what we said before, do less with more, right? So we can get that equity-like return with less volatility because we're in a different asset class. Okay, so it's about flexibility. Obviously, all of those asset classes are available. It's also about, as you point out, risk management. So Adam, uh, walk me through how you do portfolio construction and how you handle both sides of that. Yeah, so we have another chart on that. and um, A Venn diagram. A Venn diagram. Right? You bring me back to high yeah, school every time. I don't time. know if uh, anybody remembers this from grade school, but I, I did. And I actually found it to be fun when I was in grade school because it was very simple. If you're positioned properly, you're in the middle of the Venn diagram. And if you're not, you make an adjustment. And that's basically what we're doing at all given points in time. This, um, if you were to ask us what is the, what is what's, re what's really different about this fund, I really think it's this Venn diagram. It's duplicable, it makes this process duplicable and repeatable, and it allows us to, um, to, to find opportunities no matter where we are in the business cycle. Um, because as Scott was saying, the market has a tendency of mispricing risks, rightly or wrongly, every year. That is already different. So I like to think of this having three, uh, three key components. The first one is the scenario analysis, and that what, that's what Scott was mentioning. We want to make sure that we have a high enough level of current income to dampen the blow in the down markets in the event that either stocks or bonds go down, um, but really to, to give us an equity-like return with much less volatility uh, if things turn out uh, better. So the scenario analysis um, is we usually like to stress test the portfolio uh, in a very naive approach, uh, assuming that the underlying stocks in the portfolio were to go up or down 10%, or the underlying credit spreads or interest rates were to move up um, the first 100 basis points. <clears throat> then we look at the current, inc current yield. We look at the, the uh, duration of the fund and the equity sensitivity. 
And what, we're, what, ma what makes this fund really different is we, we're always looking for something where you can get as close to zero in a worst case scenario, um, you know, where, where the markets are going down. That's how you know you have a proper amount of risk uh, that you're taking on. What's different from uh, this relative to other, other traditional balance funds is that um, there's not, a, it's not, not as much, as much uh, matching. And what we like to look at is what would happen to the fund if the underlying stocks were to go down 10%. But interest rates were to move in our favor, or credit spreads were to move in our favor. If you do this to other other um, other funds out there, other structures, you'll actually notice that you get a negative return. And we want that to be positive. If that's not positive, it means that we don't have enough income, or we have too much risk on on one end of the uh, on one end of the spectrum, and we make adjustments. That's the key point. Uh, the other thing is we're always asked, well, how how do we know um, how much equity or bond you're going to have in this fund at any given point in time? And that's the other blue circle. And so these are rules of thumb that you can write down that we always follow, um, that you can explain to a client uh, or even for yourselves to justify making an investment in the fund. Number one, we can only have between uh, any, we can, no have, we can have no less than 30% in stocks, no more than 60% in stocks. So through a full investment cycle, think of it around 40, 45% uh, equities. Uh, but we have that flexibility. Uh, the other thing would be that that would mean that we can have between 40 and 70% in bonds. So then you ask yourself, well, um, what's the mix going to be? Is investment grade, emerging market debt, high yield? Well, we set a rule for ourselves that um, relative to 50% of the U.S. investment grade bond market, which is called the Barclays Aggregate Index, which has an investment grade duration of around 3.2 years right now, we can never really be more or less than one and a half year overweight or underweight um, investment grade duration. And that has really helped us to capture that premium yield and to use that flexibility at various points in time. Um, and then the other thing is that um, even though we, we don't have a benchmark against the S&P 500, we want to build the profile, the risk profile around that. So we do limit our, um, our underweights to the top 10 names in the S&P 500 to 250 basis points of what 50% of the S&P 500 weight would be. This way we give you that tracking and that's why you'll see some of the bigger names in the fund. And then lastly, we're always seeking a premium yield. I mean, we want to give you a really big premium yield to really dampen that blow. And then the last thing is um, just the green circle. We have a, a team of uh, three teams of risk, uh, uh, of risk analysts in our group, and we have, uh, we're looking at our beta, we're looking at our tracking error, forecasted beta and tracking error. And a good rule of thumb to think about this fund is that through a full investment cycle, this will be a beta of one. Um, we can um, have points, we can be as low as 0.75 and go up to one and a quarter, uh, 1.3, uh, but think about it as a one beta through the full investment cycle. When you have that fine balance, things really come together, and then the security selection is the fourth leg as well. Okay, so then against that background and all those decisions in those three spheres, how tactical, Scott, maybe you can answer this one, how tactical has the fund been in the past? And give me some examples. Sure, sure. So I think we've got another chart on this one because this is what I like to say is kind of the proof statement to, to what we do. Um, so this looks at the asset allocation history of, of this portfolio since its inception since 2014. And I think a lot of folks, if you look at competitor funds or even some funds, um, you know, within our own lineup, right? They, they're not necessarily tactical. They have strategic allocations, which is fine. But what you're getting here with us is we're going to move the portfolio around and find areas where there's the, the bad news is priced in and we can get that risk reward profile skewed to the upside. So, you know, I've talked in, in past events about what we did in COVID, but I think what's, what I think is a, a unique thing that we've, we've been doing um, this past or last year and into this year, you can see kind of the teal piece up on the top, it's investment grade corporate bonds. And if we think about what happened last year, 
the Fed was raising rates, inflation was going up, and bond asset classes got decimated, right? So we saw lots of bond prices going down. But in the investment-grade world, bond prices were going down as a function of, of rates and, and, and not credit risk. So when we looked at a lot of these bonds, um, shorter-duration bonds from companies that everybody in here would know, we're getting 6 7% yields in some instances, um, but the stock or the bond prices are depressed because of interest rates. And we think, well, if we can do the credit work right, and we know the company's not going to go bankrupt, this is a great risk-reward. We can add yield to the portfolio in a very risk-controlled way, so doing less or more with less, right? So we can get that income component or that yield component that we might have been getting from the high yield market uh, a couple months ago or six months ago. We're now getting that in a much, much less risky manner, and that's why you see that teal piece go up. There's also some other components of that um, that are unique, and I think it's part of the strategy, which is unique. There's asset classes and subcomponents of these asset classes that we're looking at that others might not be. So also included in that teal piece are what we call subordinated notes of large money center banks, almost preferred securities. These are fixed to floating rate, and because of the, uh, the fixed nature and the long maturities, the market was treating them as fixed income instruments or long duration in instruments when in fact they do float. So again, this is an area where we got the prices depressed because there was too much bad news about duration. We understand that these, these securities float. They're not really in an index. They're not really followed very well by a lot of people. This was an advantage for us, and we took part in that and have put a decent allocation into the, into the portfolio today. So very dynamic. But the thing that jumps out at me when I look at that chart is 2000 and late 18, sure. 19, it looks like, when the blue jumps up and the green shrinks like crazy. So what's that, treasuries and equities? Yeah, so what, the, what happened? So the green there in the middle in 2018, that was, that's treasuries. And okay. if we think about what was happening going into late 2018, um, that was when you know, Fed Powell, the Fed chairman, uh, Jerome Powell, was starting to talk about uh, you know, putting things on autopilot. We were going to think about raising rates and uh, valuation spreads in all fixed in, uh, plus sector environments. So high yield loans were getting really tight. And as we looked at things, we felt like they, we were ripe for a policy era potentially based on what was being priced in the market. And sure enough, that happened. And uh, after that, uh, you know, that, that episodic sell-off we saw in late 2018, um, you, start, you start to see things like the green line, like the, the bright green line, high yield bonds start to come back into play. Uh, the equities go up a little higher. So, you know, that was just us looking at the markets, understanding where we are in the business cycle, looking at valuations, and that's what led to the allocation to treasuries there. Okay, so then the question is, you know, how does that, what's your turnover like? Because sure. you phone up Ramona and say, hey, Ramona, get on it. We need, <laughs> we need some funds in there now. So, you know, so turnover in this strategy, as you can see, is pretty high, right? And I think a lot of folks get worried with a strategy that has high turnover that you're going to get a high tax bill. And what, what Adam has, and the team, what we've done is work with our treasury group to understand where our unrealized gains and losses are, where our tax liabilities are, so that when we do make allocations, we try to do it in a tax-aware manner, so that when you look at after-tax returns, you're getting roughly 90% of the pre-tax return. So that makes this a great strategy and portfolio for both retirement or educational accounts as well as taxable accounts. Put it away and forget about it. Exactly. But it is a changing thing. So Adam, maybe walk me through. I mean, we saw what was happening with the investment grade corporate bonds that uh, Scott just addressed in late 22. What's happening currently? Because it looks like equities are dropping off. Yeah, yeah. So um, one, of the, one of the key themes uh, for this year, and it, especially at the end of last year as well, is that when you look at um, other things, uh, credits, and now even investment grade bonds, 
um, the risk reward is much more attractive in our opinion. We, we still own equities in the fund where we brought that, down, that weight down. But like Scott said, we feel as if we can get more with less, more with less, less meaning volatility, less with meaning equities, because it's very hard to outrun the yield out there now, very hard. Um, and so, you know, let's think back to October when duration was selling off. I was speaking with Ford O'Neill and we were just chatting on the phone. He says, you know, I'm adding some corporate bonds to my total bond funds. And um, he says, you should take a look at what, uh, what we're adding, look at my best ideas. I called up the investment grade analysts, got to read the research, got familiar with them and said, you know what, this is pretty good. You can get six and a half percent paper for two year investment grade companies that are gonna be worth par in a, hundred, in, in a couple of years. Um, you know, names we all know. So started to add a lot of investment grade corporates back in October. And then there was a period earlier this year as well where I was doing the same thing. Um, not only that, on the short ends, um, where you're getting a much, you know, much better uh, yield than what you get for a GIC, for example. Um, you can look in the long end as well for some of these big investment grade companies that are money good. Um, many of these investment grade corporate bonds have traded down into the 50s. Um, yielding something where you'd get where you have to go into the high yield market a number of years ago to get. So that's why you see the blue line moving higher. In fact, um, you know, you can't really see it on there, but, you know, we're actually, uh, you know, we're probably more in tune with, um, you know, uh, investment grade going forward, um, you know, probably around quarter of the fund, uh, you know, uh, is, is ex you know, exposed to investment grade corporates or treasuries. Uh, and then also on the treasury side, there's a lot of, um, it's a very flat curve. Um, we've historically always been on the long end of the curve for an insurance policy in case something bad happens. Money usually flows into the long end of the curve. Uh, but like you've heard today, I mean, the economy, uh, you know, has the potential to slow. Um, you know, inflation, if you were asking me last year versus today, I'd say inflation has the potential to come down today better than it did the last year. Um, that usually, th that combination usually means uh, the front end of the curve could start to, you know, give you something more than the, the, uh, the coupon. So I think that there's an interesting opportunity over there as well. And then where have we been funding it? Uh, you know, we've, we, um, we've been funding it from, uh, from, from equities. Um, you know, one of the things you and I were speaking about in another conference was, you know, one of the areas where that sold off so much last year on duration fear was the convertible bond market. Right. Um, and the underlying stocks of those convertible bonds in the United States are mostly growth innovative companies, small mid cap companies, technology and healthcare. And those stocks were selling off from April of 21 all the way to the end of last year. Many of them are 89, were down 80, 90%. They had convertible bonds they issued. They traded down to um, you know, the 50s or 60 cents on a dollar. But when you look closely at the balance sheet, and we have 17 analysts in the high, high yield and alternatives group, we manage $100 billion. They put on their credit hat and they said, you know what? These companies have enough cash to offset all their debt outstanding and they're actually generating cash flow. Why don't you dovetail some of these uh, underlying equities with, um, uh, with, uh, with the convertible bond? And so um, we did that and some of those did very well and uh, a lot of good news got priced in. And so now we find the other opportunities elsewhere, uh, doing so in a tax aware manner. And there are a lot of opportunities out there now. I'm finding, uh, I feel like an adult in a candy shop. Uh, there's a <laughs> lot out there. Um, you have to really put your, you know, your credit hat on. And I've been a credit analyst for 20 years. I'm also a, a Canadian chartered accountant as well. So we're looking at the balance sheets. Um, there are a lot of opportunities and mispriced securities out there. And that's what we're trying to find. We're want, we want to step in after the episodic sell-offs occur. We're always cognizant of where we are in the business cycle. 
Um, and um, we just want to make sense of as to what we're seeing and if there's an opportunity in there to make an equity-like return without buying an equity, then we will make that an investment in the, in the actual security. I'll just say one more thing. So this is a very unique structure as well. So it's an asset allocation fund, but it's a bottom-up security portfolio. So I have my co-managers, uh, but as lead manager, it's my fiduciary responsibility to determine what goes into the fund. So that's why, going back to your question, how we work together, I'm trying to take everybody's best ideas from their individual security funds and put them into the portfolio. Right. Okay. So that blue sector isn't S&P 500 equivalent or, or some kind of... Correct. Index. Correct. So, I, so you heard Ramona speak about the pharmaceutical companies, and I still remember that conversation we had. She was telling me a couple years ago, two, three years ago, pharmaceutical companies, the large cap pharmaceutical companies, they pay attractive dividends, and um, there was a lot of bad news priced into the patent cliffs. And so we started to get to know these companies, and they've been staples in the fund. Um, but uh, and you'll also see some of the bigger names in the S&P 500. But historically, this fund has always been underweight the S&P 500 in favor of the other asset classes. And right now, I'd say it probably has more of a mid-cycle-ish uh, tilt, um, just based on what I was hearing this morning. There's a, there's a big dislocation right now in the market, rightly so, fight to safety into large caps. Um, but there's a lot of cushions for error in other areas as well. And we have the ability to invest anywhere in the world. Um, there's some Canadian stocks in there as well. You'll notice a few uh, in, if you look at the holdings in the portfolio. We have some, some European stocks. I'm keeping an eye on what Ramona's doing in her global funds as well. I mean, these are the type of conversations that all, always come up. Okay, so this is not a fund of funds where Ramona runs the sleeve. You consult with Morona, you do things very, very similar. Correct, and that's what makes this very different from other funds. It's an asset allocation fund, and that's sort of what's synergistic with my other job as well with Ford, O'Neill, and Ramona. Ford, Ramona. Ford, Ramona, and myself work on other asset allocation funds together. So this is synergistic with what we're doing. Ford, O'Neill, and I, for example, manage uh, the strategic fund family. Uh, we're asset allocators, and there, we have 16 or 17 different income-oriented asset classes on here with sub-managers from Fidelity. So going back to your questions about how many times do we meet, we're, we're, we're meeting with all these sub-managers on a regular basis. We're sitting with them asking questions. Um, and I know what everybody, all the internal fund managers' best ideas are at Fidelity. And um, I know what their top ideas are. All you really need is, you know, five to 20 of the best ideas in each asset class to really make a difference. And that also allows us to have that flexibility and nimbleness. Um, having that flexibility and nimbleness in this strategy in a tax-aware manner allows us to take advantage of the opportunities that come our way. And when, when liquidity becomes tight in these markets, that's when very interesting opportunities come around. I've seen so many cycles going back to 2000. I started in 1999 in the group. And, um, you know, uh, uh, our analysts are terrific as well. We have ter terrific uh, bottom-up security selecting analysts as well. Hmm. Uh, okay. Everybody has the app, both in this room and, and virtually. We have a question. With rates higher, would you consider a cash allocation as an asset as well? And how much cash can you own? Yeah, so we can have up to 20% in cash. And um, right now, uh, I think cash is very attractive. In fact, um, you know, when I look at um, the alternative uh, GIC, I mean, you can get that now if you, you can go, you can go out one, two years now on the treasury curve beyond uh, any debt ceiling issues, you know, and get something, uh, you know, close to 5%. Um, so, um, you know, cash is definitely an asset, uh, but at the end of the day, when you take into account, um, 
you know, the potential for um, the economy to slow, the potential for inflation to be a little bit more tame, the potential for something to happen in the economy that forces rate cuts. You can go out a couple more years in the curve and there you can get a similar coupon and then you can get some capital appreciation if the, if the, if the curve starts to become more normal um, because you start to hear about a roll down in the curve. Uh, you haven't heard that as much. Maybe you'll hear it today from, from, um, from people like Jeff, um, who I speak to as well. A lot of his best ideas are in my fund. Um, so that those, I think you can go out safely along the curve outside of cash now as well. I think, too, when you think about cash as well, you go back to the, the Venn diagram. How is that going to impact the yield? It's probably going to not really impact the yield too, too much today. It's actually going to probably make it a little bit higher than it has historically. But then you have to think about, well, what's it going to do to the beta profile, right? How is it going to affect those other metrics? So we have to keep those in context. So it's, it's on the menu, but it also depends on what's the underlying mix and, and the opportunities in other places, too. If it's 20% capped, where is it currently? Uh, I'm keeping it as, as as close to zero as possible. I'm finding a oh, lot really? of yeah. I'm, I'm incremental money is going into the investment grade side uh, of the fund at this point, and also as Scott was mentioning, um, the the subordinated investment grade fixed the floaters of some of the largest money center banks and even the utilities. So if you were to look at some of the stocks in the fund, you'll notice that we don't own any banks, consistent with what Ramona was saying. We don't own any utility stocks because I was looking around the capital structure and saying, you know what, you can go just into the investment grade stack of these companies. Think of some of the largest utility utility companies in the United States, the largest money center banks. Um, and you can look and you can see that there's some, some investment grade fixed afloat or debt that's yielding on a current yield basis around 6.5%, trading at 92 cents, 93 cents in a dollar. And then if you look a little close, more closely at, and look at the indentures, the covenants, and say, wow, in one year or two years, some of these are actually going to float at the three-month or the five-year treasury rate plus 300 basis point spread, something that you get in the floating rate debt market, and you have to go all the way into single B land. Um, because of this duration fear that happened the last couple of years, there's been so much carnage and opportunities have arisen uh, in, the, um, in the preferred market, the investment-grade subordinated fixed floating market, that um, you know, we're finding opportunities over there. If rates move lower, possibly that's getting priced in, but you can get called at 100 cents in the dollar um, you know, in two years when they float, and that's a good scenario as well. Uh, and the same thing with the utilities. Um, you're getting two, three, four times the yield on a preferred um, on utility by, on the utility stocks mm. on the utilities. Mm. Uh, why why even bother with the with the equity at this point? <laughs> um, question from the app again: How much U.S. content has your fund historically owned? And I guess the corollary question is: This a global fund too? I guess it's yes. there, but how global? Sure. So I, we've got a, a compliance cap of thirty percent non-U.S. So that's the max we can go. Um, historically, we've been well under that. I mean, this is a U.S.-centric fund, but when there are opportunities, we will go there. So if you look in the portfolio, and I think Adam mentioned it before, and, and it was funny because, um, you know, th this was the first time. I remember we were coming from the airport, and I, I saw a couple A&W stores, and we've got <laughs> some of their, we've got one of their royalty companies in our portfolio, right? So, you know, so that's an example of a Canadian uh, uh, position that we have. We also have, we've had some uh, Asian stocks in there before. And I think one area that we're looking at really closely right now is emerging market debt, particularly on the local side. So if you think about looking for bad news that's getting priced in, right? Last year we had duration. You had in emerging market debt, you've got uh, the Ukraine and Russia geopolitical concerns that were happening there. 
Then you and you also had um, some credit issues on the high yield side of the emerging market debt world. So that's three risks getting priced into that market. That means there's got to be opportunities there. And we work very closely with our EMD team and have been putting small positions in Brazil uh, and, and potentially um, some other places where we could find opportunities. But that's not going to be a huge component, but it's there. And, and we can do it if, if we see the opportunity. When you work globally, do you work in the local currency or do you hedge out the currency? We've done, uh, well, if we're going to do local currency, we're, we're buying the local currency because we want that exposure, right? Oh. Um, but we have historically owned uh, hard currency uh, uh, emerging market debt as well. So we can do either. Okay. On the equity side, can you own non-dividend paying stocks as well? Yes, 100%. We have those risk buckets that I gave you before. And when, yep. when we're within our risk buckets, we definitely can. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to build out a risk profile that's similar to what you would get on, fifth, on the other 50% of the, of the traditional benchmark, which would be the S&P 500. So if we feel there's too much bad news priced into something that's not paying, uh, not paying um, a dividend, uh, that actually is smaller mid-cap, and it's sold off simply because of concerns on the economy and duration fears or liquidity fears, then that sometimes that can be viewed as a bond as well, hmm. especially when you dovetail it with a bond. So it becomes a, almost like a, a dividend-paying stock. Uh, we touched on convertibles, and I'll get back to those in a second. But before we do, uh, Scott, uh, leverage loans and high yield. We haven't talked about those sleeves. What are your thoughts right now? Well, I, I'm hesitant to say sleeves, Pat, right? Because we're not using <laughs> sleeves. We're not sending money to Harley Lank on the high yield side or, or Eric and Kevin uh, Nielsen on the loan side. But, you know, those be, there are opportunities there, select opportunities, but it, they're at our low end of our allocations um, historically. And I think part of it is because of where we are in the cycle. Um, you know, we heard a lot about credit tightening and albeit, you know, high yield and loan spreads have held in there pretty well. Um, we can just get similar return. We think potentially similar returns out of less risky places than within high yield and loans today. I think loans and high yield should probably expect default rates to move higher over the next 12 months. We'll see where we end up. There's some people that are saying much higher than the long-term average. I think our group is thinking around the long-term average. Um, at the margin, if I had to pick one high yield over loans, I'd probably go with loans because if I think about what drove performance of loans last year, um, and while they were you know, flat, um, the prices were down you know, in the, the mid to, to low 90s. Because it's a floating rate instrument, you're not getting the negative impacts of duration like you were getting in high yield. So a lot of the downside performance in high yield last year was the function of duration, where the, the downside performance in loan prices last year was a function of credit risk. So maybe some more credit risk baked into the loan market today. Mm -hmm. And so if you're worried about that, maybe that's a better risk reward if you're worried about credit risk between the two. But what, what we have in the portfolio, probably around 17% high yield in loans right now. If you look at just the high yield part of the portfolio, and um, you know these we high, fidelity and alter, high yield and alternatives group has been around for 30, 30 something years. We, um, if you took take a look at some of our high income funds, we have some really great credit analysts as well that are that are choosing the best of the best, and that's what I have in the funds. You know, it's interesting. You talked about convertibles, and I checked on that little periodic chart that you had, Scott. Convertibles, for instance, uh, 2020. Two, we're down, um, you know, 18, 19% kind of a thing, and they've rebounded, but slowly, like 4%. Is that typical, or would you have expected a faster bounce? 
Um, so the, the convertible bond market is a great question. I remember you, you said you were a convertible bond I used bond to be set. a convert trader, yeah, yes. Exactly. So we have, uh, um, uh, we've had this discussion many times. And um, it's an interesting time because right now the convertible bond market um, is one of the most sold off asset classes out there. It's been shrinking every single year for the last number of years. And if you were to look at the profile, and these are, these are all U.S. companies, U.S. Uh, mid-cap growth companies, um, around 50% is technology and healthcare. Uh, you got a little consumer discretionary in there. But if you were to look at the market profile today, around 60% of the market is what you call um, busted, trading with equity sensitivity of 0 to 40%. Essentially, they're a bond trading at prices between 30 to 70 cents in the dollar. But like I was saying, if you look at um, what's been happening with these companies, um, there's no other debt on the balance sheet. There's no covenants. There's cash balance offsetting the, the debt. Uh, which is the convertible. And these companies were smart. They issued convertibles at the peak of the NASDAQ in March of 21. Um, and now, as we go through you know, dozens of these companies and we have our analysts looking at them, we have some really good analysts uh, in the high yield and alternatives group that are looking at these. And they're saying, you know what, if I put on my LBO hats, if I thought about this as a private equity investor, um, this company is actually worth 100 cents on a dollar and we can buy it at 75 cents on a dollar. <laughs> and that's why you'll see a basket of our top ideas on the convertibles. And we've actually had one of our bigger overweights in this fund in November of last year got taken over. Coupa Software, a procurement software company, got taken over by Thomas Bravo. Um, and uh, this was after it went from 100 cents on the dollar to 75 cents on the dollar. And overnight, these convertibles have a change of control puts. You get 100 cents on the dollar back if they get taken over. And so that's what we mean. An example of less volatility, doing more with less getting an, um, sort of a nice payoff uh, for the investors in the fund. And we have a few others like that in the fund as well. Uh, last question, because we've got a couple of minutes left, but uh, Andrew was talking about housing, leading things out as far as the economy is concerned. Do you have exposure to REITs? So historically we have, um, I would say right now, it's, it's at a, the, the real low end of, of our range, right? So what we think about when we look at, at, at REITs, it's, it's, it's looking at the cap rate, the capitalization rate of REITs, relative to the triple B bond, corporate bonds, or 10-year treasuries. And that spread today is above the long-term average, even with some of the sell-offs we've seen in that asset class. So we're at the low end of the range, and our exposure to REITs today is more in things like um, industrial uh, facilities, um, cell phone towers, avoiding things like um, office and uh, malls and stuff like that, which would be most negatively impacted by you know, negative uh, views on, on housing, generally speaking. Last minute to you, Adam. What's your outlook like, look like for the balance of the year? Well, uh, you know, like we like we heard today, um, you know, we we're, we like to think we're in the late late cycle, and um, we're looking for asset classes and securities that are pricing um, a recession already. So, you know, whatever happens, if it's delayed or if it happens, I mean, we're always are cognizant of where we are, but we're always going to find opportunities out there. And we gave a bunch of examples that of these asset classes and securities where the risks overshoot. And so, like uh, Ramona said finding natural volatility dampers. Because if you buy those securities or those asset classes that have the bad news priced into it, if the bad news occurs, it doesn't go down as much as the securities that have no bad news priced into them. And this is uh, repeatable and duplicable. And why you've seen this fund over multiple cycles now since it's, in, since it's um, it started, you know, do well in the down market, preserve capital as best as we can, but really capture that upside quicker. And that's um, com combining into a better risk-adjusted return Adam, Scott, thank you so much. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.